Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So since this is a season where a lot of people in our listener base have just seen The Nutcracker. Including me. I had just saw it on Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) which is a ballet standard for Christmas time, it seemed like a good time to delve into where ballet began and how it became codified. And we have covered a couple of famous ballet dancers on the podcast, including Marie Taglioni in 2013 and Maria Tallchief in 2014. And after each of those, we had a number of requests for a general ballet history episode. So finally, years later, here we are. With a lot of caveats, Uh, because this episode is a two-parter, and even so, it leaves so much out. Uh, Ballet's beginnings in the Royal Court of France meant that in many ways it became tied to national identity, not just in France, but in the various places that it developed after that, which also meant that the political shifts of the Western world impacted it in a variety of ways, and we cannot put a comprehensive history of the West into a ballet episode uh, or really (laughs) into any one episode. So it just, a a lot of things touch this particular topic uh, in ways that are not easy to be inclusive of everything. Also, because of the way ballet developed, there is a good bit of French history and a smattering of other nations. But again, brief. Uh, Additionally, if you love ballet, I feel you. I studied dance for a long time, and I would really, really be happy to wax rhapsodic over every single step in Giselle, which is one of my personal favorites, or talk about the astonishingly beautiful costumes in Balanchine's Jewels. Oh, they're really pretty. Google that if you want to see some pretty things. But we can't go too in-depth into any one ballet, although Taglioni in La Sylphie does get a good bit of talk because it's a, a pivotal moment in ballet history. So in short, I just want to reiterate the brief in the title, A Brief History of Ballet, even though it is in two parts. Yeah, I am imagining a whole college course that's like, a history of Europe and Asia through the lens of ballet. That would be fascinating. Um, I had a whole college course, and even it still covered only Western and could not get to everything. (laughs) Like, it's just too much. And like I said, there are so many pieces. And I think part of it, we'll talk about this at the end, but the way ballet migrated around through dancers traveling and dance oh, yeah. teachers traveling, it also gets really complex in terms of the world stage, literally, because mm-hmm. everything is touching each other in ways that might not happen in the development of some other cultural phenomenon. Right. So humans have undoubtedly danced in some way or another pretty much for as long as we have existed. But while most people have a natural response of moving when there's rhythmic music, it's not necessarily structured or choreographed. The average person might know some popular contemporary steps, or you could be like me and know none of them and just be awkward all the time. You might break those out at weddings or other social engagements, but comparatively few have formally studied dance. And for a long time, there was no formalized dance in Western culture. Over time, performers who had been entertaining the courts of Europe, such as jugglers and acrobats, were then also asked to teach their audiences how to dance. And this blended the worlds of performance and social dancing, and it created an entirely new profession, that of the dance educator, who taught grace and etiquette, as well as dance steps. The man who's often cited as the first dancing master in the Western timeline is Domenico de Piacenza. 
And truthfully, there were probably other people before him, but he's the first one that's really documented. Piacenza wrote the first dance manual in Europe in 1416. It was titled On the Art of Dancing and Directing Choruses. It's important to note that Piacenza, who was about 16 when this work was published, was doing what a lot of dance instructors were doing at the time, combining both music and dance in his work. Yeah, it, uh, we'll see more later on that dance runs very parallel with uh, music, and the- even once it gets to a very theatrical point, a lot of opera and dance is very linked. Piacenza, who eventually was knighted in the Order of the Golden Spur, choreographed dances for a variety of social events for nobility, including weddings and festivals throughout Italy. In the last decades of his life, several of those dances and their accompanying musical notations were published. His ideology and teaching focused on things like really understanding musical tempo and letting it guide the body, and also maintaining a light and agile mode of movement, always ready to move on to the next step. In his writing, he stated, quote, this necessitates that at each tempo, one appears to have seen Medusa's head, as the poet says, and be of stone in one instant, and in another instant, take flight like a falcon driven by hunger. He really saw dance as a union of intellect and effort to create beauty, and he thought that it helped to be naturally beautiful to be the best possible dancer. (laughs) Something I think people still think today. Yeah, I love his advice about, like, always be ready to move again, because when you see uh, novices learning steps, that's usually what trips them up, is that they are like, I'm thinking about this step, I have completed this step. And then other people are moving on to the next step while they're like, I have completed the step. Um, So (laughs) that in and of itself is really good advice, but then it gets kind of lame when it's like, oh, you better be pretty. Um, (laughs) One of Piacenza's students was Antonio Cornizzano, who was a poet and a biographer as well as a dancing master. A lot of these people had very diversified resumes. Antonio became the dancing master of some of Milan's most wealthy and influential families, and he wrote his own book, Book of the Art of the Dance. Another of Domenico de Piacenza's students, Guglielmo Abreo de Pizarro, who is often seen as Giovanni Ambrosio, because that's the name he assumed later on in his life, contributed also to the early Western record of codified dance. In his 1463 book, Treatise on the Art of Dancing, he included descriptions of dozens of large-scale court dances from the era. Yeah, at this point, a lot of what was being dis- uh, written down and and codified was not about steps, but like the shapes that people should make in a, in a ballroom to create a dance. Uh, and Italy continued to be central in Europe in the incorporation of structured and choreographed dance into its celebrations and events throughout the 15th century and into the 16th. On January 13, 1490, one of the most famous productions of the Renaissance era was staged. It was called Festa del Paradiso, or Feast of Paradise. And that was staged by Leonardo da Vinci, based on the work of poet Bernardo Balencioni in Milan. Festa del Paradiso was part performance art and part architectural marvel, and it was staged to celebrate the marriage of Gian Galeazzo Sforza and Isabella of Aragon. The production had lavish scenery that depicted Jupiter surrounded by planets and stars. The stage revolved, and Roman gods and goddesses were all included in this welcome to Isabella. There have been entire books written about this one event. But for the purposes of this discussion, the germane aspect is that there was an entire prologue of dance performances in honor of the newlyweds. 
Yeah, there have been various modern recreations of this event, but it is just described in all writing as this astonishing thing. It's like one of those things that the people that were there for it were almost revered for having been at a a marked and important moment in history. And coming up, we are also going to talk about uh, a woman who is mentioned on the podcast fairly frequently and who has been the focus of some of our recent classics, and that's Catherine de' Medici. But first, we are going to pause and have a little sponsor break. Up to this point, the slow codification of dance was happening largely in Italy. But if you are even passingly familiar with ballet, you know that all of the terminology for it is in French. Uh, And we actually have Catherine de' Medici to thank for that. When Catherine married Henri II of France in 1533, she brought a lot of Italian customs and culture into the French court. It wasn't as though France did not have plenty of culture of its own, but Catherine missed the very over-the-top celebrations that she had been growing up with. So she encouraged the development of the kinds of dances and events such as balletti and ballet that she had loved at home back in Italy. At this point, these ballets, as the French called them, were formal social events, although in some cases the specific steps were adapted as performances. Yeah, but even those performances were not, like, set apart from the event. They were kind of in the middle of it. Uh, almost the way you would have, like, a dance line at a modern event (laughs) uh, where people go through and they show off their skills, kind of like that, except much more formal and not as freestyle. And, of course, if you have listened to the podcast, you know that Catherine de' Medici was involved in all manner of political intrigue, and she was no innocent. So I don't want to try to paint a picture of her as some benevolent purveyor of culture from Italy to France, but her influence on the arts of Europe is significant. In 1581, Balthazar de Bourgeoyot, who had traveled from Italy to the court of France in 1555 as a musician, staged the first ballet that we have the complete record for. His creation was Ballet Comique de la Reine, and that's the Queen's comic ballet. It was created as part of the celebration of the marriage of Marguerite de Lorraine to the Duc de Joyeuse in October. That was October 15th of 1581. And this performance included singing and poetry as well as dancing. It also lasted five and a half hours. Uh, This was expensive to produce, and the price tag for that particular piece of entertainment was 3.6 million gold francs. And yes, there were absolutely people at court who spoke very critically of that level of expenditure at a time when France was in conflict and should not have been throwing money around. But this production also had a massive influence. For one thing, it set a trend. It inspired courts of other countries to similarly stage massive theatrical performances. It also sparked not only the development of ballet as an art form, but also opera. Ballet Comique de la Reine was a narrative. It was the story of Circe from Homer's Odyssey, although it's ultimately the king of France to whom Circe bows in this version. The performance was given by members of the court, and while it may be called the first ballet, it was not up on a stage. It was just in the middle of a ballroom. Yeah, like I said, everybody's just kind of at the same level, dancing, sharing their uh, their uh, production. 
This performance had been the result of more than a decade of effort and philosophizing about art at the Académie de Poésie et de Musique, which was founded in 1570 by Catherine's son, Charles IX of France. He gets the same disclaimer as his mother regarding often being uh, the cause of a lot of political intrigue, not just a benevolent patron of the arts. The Academy was established on the idea that humans could achieve a certain level of spiritual grace through the study of the arts. And this sort of runs parallel to the use of theatrical spectacles and celebration as a way to counter the heavy conflict of France at the time. Conflict that this family and the royals staging these ballets were often party to and also often the cause of. And in terms of ballet's history, Ballet Comique de la Reine started another trend in addition to just inspiring other nations to do the same basic thing. That was the Ballet de Cour, or the Court Ballet. That just means that it was dances in which the performers and the audience were mostly all members of the court, with monarchs sometimes participating as performers. It was sort of a by-us-for-us art in an extremely exclusive sense, And it also made dancing a serious and intellectual form of expression in the French court, so it could reflect political and religious ideologies. There was a degree to which these court dances were really being used to soothe the minds of the aristocracy. It was sort of like, look how ordered and beautiful all of this is. France is obviously doing just fine. Francis, we're doing great, you guys. (laughs) Look what we make. We're so amazing. Uh, Yeah, it's one of those weird things where... You realize just how completely uh, separate the lives of the haves and have-nots were at this period. The Ballet de Cour and its predecessors were fundamentally just building on existing dance steps that would be part of any fancy social function. And because of that, write-ups on staging had always been pretty vague about how to actually do these steps. It appears that there was a presumption that the reader of any such documentation would just know how to do the basadance or the gavotte, so instructions tended to focus on the shapes that the dancers should form up in, where they should physically be in relation to other groups or other dancers. Uh, And throughout this period these dance performances were still part of much larger productions that included singing and spoken word segments. Finally, in 1588, someone wrote down an instruction manual of how to actually do the steps of ballet and how those steps should interact with the music. The author of this work was Jehan Tabarot, who was a priest, writing as Toineau Arbeau, Orchestography not only codified all of these court dances dating back to the 12th century, but it also did so in a way that made it accessible to everyone. Yes, theoretically, uh, our bow's writing could be picked up by any novice and they would go, now I know how to dance. Uh, the reign of Louis XIV famously put France on the map as the nexus of the arts in Europe. And Louis XIV was in many ways far more interested in art than politics and his decision to bolster All kinds of arts when he was king shaped the identity of France in ways that continue to reverberate today. And dance was certainly part of that. But his predecessor, Louis XIII, who reigned from 1610 to 1643, was also really enamored with the ballet de cour. He was a regular and enthusiastic participant as a performer and as a designer. And under Louis XIII, the ballets were still very much part of a party atmosphere at court. They became raucous and filled with innuendo and even crass humor, and they were wildly popular. A little too popular to some degree because in some cases the king couldn't even get through the crowds that were gathering to see the performances to make his entrance. They had all clumped up to see the king and could not because they were blocking him. 
It was during Louis XIII's time as monarch that the stage emerged, bringing the spectacle of ballet up off of the floor. And it's also when the idea of the audience and the performers occupying separate spaces really established itself, at least as related to ballet. Theaters were built with backstage areas and entrance wings, and the types of riggings that enabled the performance of the ballet to become more of an artful deception. When the audience had shared the floor with the performers, there was never any real way to just lose yourself in the willful suspension of disbelief that the characters in the story were real. But when the artists were creating a show separated from the crowd and only seen in character, and all the scenery tricks were concealed, the audience could get swept up in the magic of the performance. Incidentally, the phrase suspension of disbelief would not be coined for another 200 years. That's when Coleridge wrote about that idea. And next up, we are getting to the man who often gets a lot of credit when it comes to ballet's development. Uh, As I mentioned a moment ago, King Louis XIV. But before that, we are going to have a little break and have a word from a sponsor. During Louis XIV's very long reign that stretched from the mid-17th century into the early 18th century, the idea of really perfecting dance steps came into focus, establishing a true standard of technique, which remains a keystone of ballet practice today. And Louis XIV loved dancing. He began performing at age 13, and he was quite good, both because he had a very natural talent and because he practiced for several hours every day. We should mention that during this time, social dance was also at a fever pitch of popularity. While the king and other dancers perfected their steps for presentation, they and the rest of the court were also working on steps for the ballroom's less theatrical activities. The minuet, in particular, became an important dance and was often the grand finale of a series of dances at a large celebration. And both social dance and performance dance continued to be intertwined. For example, Les Plaisirs de l'Île Enchantée, that's the Pleasures of the Enchanted Island, was a three-day event that featured performers doing everything from serving food at banquets to dancing in the finale ballet. This took place at Versailles in 1664 as that property was beginning its transition from being a hunting lodge to becoming a palace, and the whole spectacle both entertained and reinforced the hierarchy, rank structure, and level of royal favor of everyone involved. Louis XIV was both the star and an observer, so for the climactic finish, a professional dancer took over the lead that Louis XIV had been performing so that the king could sit back and watch. Louis XIV also founded the first formal dance institution in the Western world, l'Académie Royale de Danse, in 1661. And to head up this enterprise, he selected 13 dancing masters for the Academy, and they had a list of tasks. They needed to develop standards of dance technique. They needed to document existing ballets so they could be repeated according to those standards, and they had to test and accredit dance teachers. These 13 masters, who called themselves the elders, were, of course, highly connected to the royal court. And the problem with all of this was that there was already a performers' guild in France, which included dancers as well as acrobats, musicians, etc. And the professional dancers who appeared in court productions alongside the nobility were already members of that existing guild, Confrérie de Saint-Julien de Ménétrier, which had been founded in Paris in 1321, so it was a long-standing tradition. 
And in addition to challenging the longstanding guild's power, this new dance academy also argued guild members attempted to divorce dance from music, which was completely anathema, and in their opinion, disrespectful to both aspects of the arts. While this academy system created tension and set up some dancing teachers as courtiers, making them wealthy in the process, the real goal of notating dance in written form was for Louis XIV to be able to export ballet, basically. He wanted French influence in the arts to be codified so that it could be admired and emulated. And this was the case with academies he established in other disciplines as well, including architecture, painting, and fencing. Yeah, he's come up in in a number of episodes on the show, uh, and he really was the beginning of France being the tastemakers of Europe and then the rest of the world. That was kind of a very calculated move on his part, that they would be the best at all of the arts. And at this point, la belle danse, also known as French noble-style dance or Baroque dance, starts to really become a precursor to what we'd call classical ballet today. But at this point, though there were women involved in court performances, it was all really about male performers rather than women. And la belle danse was a male-only form. Simultaneously, the ballet de cour was shifting into a new format, Molière's comedy ballet, which were shorter, tighter productions than these hours and hours and hours and hours long spectacles that the court had been seeing up to this point, were becoming the favored iteration of these types of performances. They still combined dance and spoken word theater, and even as they skewered the nobility and ambition and the dishonor of using dance to move up socially, as le bourgeois gentilhomme did, They were applauded for their wit rather than condemned for basically mocking the audience. It was also under Louis XIV's watch that the five positions of the feet that are key to ballet were first laid out, as established by Pierre Beauchamp, the director of the Académie Royale de Danse. And he also devised a notation system that was codified later by Raoul Auger Foyer. And Foyer published this notation and other notes on things such as arm positions and ideal bodies for dance in his 1700 book, Choreographie ou l'art de décrire la danse. So that's choreography or the art of describing dance. Meanwhile, the Académie Royale de Musique, founded in 1669, would eventually become the Paris Opera. Jean-Baptiste Lully became head of the organization in 1672, and he made a series of moves to ensure the organization's power and prestige. This included negotiating terms that made it illegal for other theaters to stage productions of the same size and scale as the royally established institution. Over time, ballet performances started to fall under the auspices of this organization. Yeah, that's a little bit of a political intrigue. They kind of took power from the Académie de Danse. And that is where we're going to leave off for the moment. Uh, Next time, we are literally picking up right where we left off, and we are going to feature a major milestone in the dance world right off the bat. Do you have some listener mail before we close out? Mais oui! I do. I have two postcards. I'm trying to, when we do postcards, I'm trying to do a couple at a time. Uh, Our first postcard that I wanted to mention is from our listener, Jess. Uh, It is from the Warsaw Uprising Museum. She just wrote, Hi, I recently visited the Warsaw Uprising Museum in Warsaw, Poland, an event unknown to me until I visited. But it plays a big part in the city and country's national identity and could be an interesting topic idea for your podcast. Thank you for your great podcast. Jess, this is a very uh, striking picture. I want to say it's beautiful, but there's a little bit of melancholy to it, but it's really lovely. So thank you, Jess, for thinking of us. Uh, I'm always so 
so odd that people take time while they're traveling to write us a postcard because I can't even manage that for my closest friends. Uh, Our second postcard comes from our listener, Phoebe. It is from Baya San Sebastian. She writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, thank you for all you do to make history accessible and entertaining. I've been listening to your podcast for about one and a half years now, and while I don't always get around to every episode, I love all of them that I do here. There's no shame in that. We all have finite time to listen to things. <laughs> I can't keep up with my podcast. I will never shame anybody over that one. Uh, this is my third year, she goes on to say, of living in Spain, and it can get a bit lonely and isolating living in a foreign country with a foreign tongue. Your podcast is one of the few I listen to to make myself more comfortable here, so thank you for always keeping me company. I wanted to write to tell you how much I enjoyed your episode about Catalina de Arauzo, the lieutenant nun. I used to live in Pamplona and would go to Donostia, Uh, often, and I loved getting to learn about such a dynamic character from my own backyard. This is coming to you so late because I wanted to get you a postcard from there. (laughs) Uh, So she then describes what the postcard is, which is... um, a main beach, which is called La Conca, which means the shell. Uh, and then she says, keep up the absolutely excellent work and more about Spain, please. Uh, she, it's so delightful. And thank you so much, Phoebe. It's a really cool panoramic postcard. So it's a beautiful, long landscape view of this area. And it looks absolutely gorgeous and makes me want to visit. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And you can visit us on our website, which is mistinhistory.com. It would also be grand of you to subscribe to the show, which is something you can do on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 